Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Listeners, today we are shaking things up a bit. Rather than releasing our usual episode, we have a special treat for all of you. We are basically sharing an episode of the Trailerhead podcast where athletes and environmental advocates Faithy Briggs and Eddie Thompson embark on thought-provoking conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, and culture. And in this particular episode, Faith and Eddie sit down with Ahmed Hijazi, a remarkable first-generation Lebanese-American thru-hiker and mountaineer, where Ahmed shares his unique perspective on Arab-American representation in the outdoors, So basically, from breaking stereotypes to embracing cultural heritage, their conversation delves into the importance of visibility, inclusivity, and empowerment. I hope you enjoy this conversation and don't forget to come back next week for a brand new episode of Immigrantly. Enjoy. Welcome to The Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. We're your hosts, Faith and Addie. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. I would just go to these mountains and spend the entire weekend, come back, and feel 180, different person, just like so much happier, so much better, in such a better place. And I was just amazed that a place of nature could make me feel so at home. This week's guest is Ahmed Hajazi. Ahmed is a hiker, mountaineer, and storyteller, among other things, who recently completed the Lebanon Mountain Trail. We met Ahmed through our friends at We Got Next and followed along on his journey on the LMT from afar. We feel so lucky to have gotten to sit down with him and learn more about Ahmed, his upbringing, and his journey with identity in and around the outdoors. We hope you enjoy. Ahmed, welcome to the Trail Ahead podcast. Thanks for coming on and joining us. Thank you both, honestly, so much. This is, I would say, most excited I've felt to do a web-based anything in a while. <laughs> how how would you introduce yourself to someone today? However you, whatever that means. However many words you want to use. Sure, yeah. My name's Ahmed Hijazi. I'm a first-generation Lebanese-American. I grew up in the Midwest, which adds some pretty interesting perspective on probably some of the things you're going to hear today. But most of my life was spent between Ohio and Michigan and speckled with some trips back and forth with Lebanon. That kind of adds to probably some of the context I'll give you for like my childhood and how I grew up. But I would say majority of my time has just been spent 
in America. So you said you grew up in mostly in the Midwest, kind of between two states or two locations? I was born in Detroit, and then my family bounced back and forth between Lebanon and then back into the USA while my parents were going through a pretty tumultuous divorce. So there was some issues that kind of required us to be in both places. What I would consider my childhoods and the earliest memories that I have and everything are all in Toledo, Ohio, which is not the most glamorous place. I'd be surprised if either of you have ever been to or seen Toledo. I mean, you basically just pass through Toledo if you're going anywhere. But I grew up mostly in Toledo, Ohio. And then as I was graduating high school, my family was relocating to Michigan, where my stepmom's family mostly resides. So that's like the Dearborn area. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dearborn area, but at some point, and I want to say recently, it was the most densely populated Arab community, and I think specifically Lebanese community in the US, and then one of the bigger ones in the world outside of Lebanon too. There's a story behind it. So Dearborn exists because of Ford, actually. When he was starting to build the plants and everything, and I don't know if you guys have a fact checker, but feel free to have the fact checker run all this. Uh, the story goes that he was looking for employees that could, I don't know, keep up with the work that they were trying to do. And he somehow got introduced to like the Lebanese community. So typical like brown people, one person moves, they bring the entire family, right? So he had brought in some Lebanese immigrants to like the Detroit area. Again, this is a story, but had fallen in love with like their work ethic and their intelligence, whatever. So one Lebanese became like 10 Lebanese. They bring all their families. And before you know it, now you go to Dearborn and you have basically just Arabic signs everywhere. Obviously there's English too, but like you could survive in Dearborn, not speaking English and only speaking Arabic. I was going to Michigan State, which was awesome for and say tuition. And then right out of college, went to the west side of Michigan, lived there for about a year where I got some of that interesting firefighter experience <laughs> and then bounced to Los Angeles for about a year and a half, two years. And now I'm in the Bay. So a big part of it, I think, in relation to this trip and everything was me trying to reconnect not only with just the the land, but also like the cultural aspects and the family aspects of being a Lebanese American that I feel like I started to lose touch with. That is so cool. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. It's interesting. I was working with someone else recently who's also Arab American, but she moved from Michigan to the Bay. <laughs> was telling me about a lot of activism in the Arab community, particularly after the Flint water crisis that she had been involved in. I didn't know that about Dearborn, but it's one of the things I liked about growing up in New York. There are areas of New York where you do not have to speak English and you're totally fine in whatever community you're in. And I think that's really pretty special and cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I took it for granted when you grow up in that area and it just like feels like this thing that you're going to visit on a daily basis or something, you don't really realize like how unique it is until you go all the way to California and you sit there and you're like, man, I could use some, some shawarma. Totally. I always think about like, who would we be without different immigrant communities? Like there is no American culture without so many of these different immigrant communities. And yet people don't even know sometimes like, oh, your favorite food, like that wouldn't exist <laughs> in addition to different kinds of music. And then in addition to different kinds of innovation, all those things, not that anyone should be like accounted for or like, I don't know, used for their like quote unquote value of like productivity 
but it is just interesting how much I think that like the specialness of that diversity kind of gets like drowned out in the news and things like that. But I think it it's pretty cool for you to have had the experience of like growing up in that and then also not being near it. What what do you what do you miss? I miss a lot, but actually you you're sparking a pretty interesting topic that's come to my mind a lot. I kind of want to dive into. <laughs> my opinions on this change a lot about like immigrant communities in general, but having experienced the Lebanese community in Dearborn and then also living in Toledo where I was really going to high school and stuff. So I was only going to Dearborn like, you know, maybe once every couple of weeks to see family and get a haircut and et cetera. But, but having experienced both those things, a lot of times, Faith, I was asking myself whether or not this was a good thing to have. And that sounds really weird because I, I love the preservation of Lebanese culture and I love the thought of like my grandparents being able to go order food and not worry about being judged and stuff. Like I love all those things. But then I also think, wait a second, are we just self-isolating? And is this is this just adding to the narrative that we don't belong? I don't know. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like I, I kind of start to think maybe there's some negative aspects to having this community just being like an Arab only community. And and to add to that, I guess, like there was times when I was younger, having, I would say 98% of my friends were were white. And then you go to Dearborn and it's it's vastly different, but you're still in America. And it was almost jarring to hear sometimes like some of my cousins and friends who were living in this only Arab community say things like that must be like a whitewashed thing talking about me. And I'm sitting there thinking like, hold on a second. Now, now we kind of swung maybe to the other end where instead of having this tight knit community that was supposed to be really like uplifting for each other, now it's almost like we're isolating ourselves. So what's going on here? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's such a complicated topic and one that Obviously, the specifics of that phenomenon varies from community to community, but I feel like it's something that probably I would say anecdotally having heard from friends that a lot of different first generation people deal with. And even though I'm not first gen, I feel like being biracial, I have a similar experience of just having to like live between two different worlds and two different cultures sometimes. But I do think that the narrative of like self-isolation or self-segregation, as it's sometimes called, is deeply impacted by the ways in which racism and prejudice also exists in mainstream American culture. And like particularly the Arab representation in the United States is so often so negative that I wouldn't be surprised if part of that is a protective defense because of all of the ways in which the community has been misrepresented or mistreated as well. So I I think it's really hard and nuanced because I feel like you can, regardless of your background, you can go somewhere, you can have one bad experience and you can say like, that's not for me. I'm not going back there and I don't want my kid to go there and I don't want my, my uncle to go and I don't want my cousin who's coming to visit me to have that experience. And it certainly adds to that, like the ways in which we 
don't know how to extend grace to each other as communities, but I think also the ways in which like immigrant and other BIPOC, brown, however we want to call it, communities often get like treated a certain way. So I just, I think it comes from both sides and it's really extremely complicated. It is, it is. And you're adding some awesome color there and queuing up some pretty good stories. So like you're saying, both sides, that's exactly what I was seeing. Like from the immigrant perspective, like you have some deeply traumatized immigrants that are coming from these countries seeking like a safe place to even live. And that trauma doesn't just go away, right? When you get to this new place, even if you found the safest place in the world to live, you have people that have experienced things that kind of put them in a place to either like distrust or, or I don't know what, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but regardless, I I see that every day in those people. They are in some ways, maybe I don't want to say this word, but afraid (laughs) of, of, trying to integrate because of the things that they've seen. And I totally understand that. And I remember, man, there was this time in high school, post 9-11 world, there was this class I was in in high school. It was like a an international debate or global, it was global issues. It was global issues class. And I was asked to debate some controversy about a mosque being built in downtown New York or rebuilt kind of close to the World Trade Center. And I remember sitting there thinking, what the fuck am I defending? I'm defending that a, a religious structure shouldn't be put up should be put up next to this like catastrophe that had nothing to do with the religion. <laughs> this is absurd. How's this even a discussion? Well and that also feels so pointed that you would be asked to do that. There are so many educators who are probably listening right now and aghast that that would happen. And at the same time, I think so many of us growing up have these experiences where like, I remember reading freaking Huckleberry Finn in high school and there being this big debate about whether or not the N-word should be said in class since it was written in the book. And I definitely remember someone being like, Faith, what do you think? And I was just like, uh, like what? Like, as the only Black kid in the class? Like, first of all, why am I pointedly being asked that? But that just feels like such an unfair thing for you to be asked to debate that. Like, Because I think that's the other thing I we talk about quite a bit from a representation angle, but also from like a, this idea of like, it's quote unquote, it's not my job to like educate you about things. And I think that like, on the other hand, there's sometimes an assumption that like, just because you, you hold in a certain identity, you have a certain expertise in like every topic tangentially related to that, like, or supposedly put upon that identity that like you would somehow have like this extra information that someone else wouldn't have is like so frustrating. That's literally how I feel with every guest on our pod. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like, how is the stories we hear and similar to this one, you know, and Faith mentioned this before, but like, I, I note this a lot too. Like it's not folks jobs to teach or to hold white people's hands even this whole podcast came out of me telling Faith, if you don't want to hold white people's hands, don't even open this email. <laughs> like we had really tried to craft an interracial conversation here, unpacking topics in the outdoors in terms of representation and equity. But like 
it's not either of your job to teach these communities that have so clearly have these held beliefs even today. Yeah, that's a great point. (laughs) That's a great point. (laughs) I'm not there to teach you guys. Like, yeah, that's a great point. And it's so terrifying, Faith, that story. I walk around sometimes extremely naively thinking like, oh, we're past that. And we're all on the same page. And it's like, God, we're not, not to be negative, but like it, that, those are the kinds of things where I'm like, nope, we're not. I was curious, Ahmed, like, did you talk to any white folks about this? Or did you have conversations that were like about these things that you were noticing in class and like friends of yours noticing them too? Or like, did that never come up? Yeah. Of all the friends you grow up with, all of these friends and everything. And in so many ways, you're intensely close to them because those are your childhood friends. But then in that single moment where you're asked a question like that, you start to reconsider and you're like, wait a second, are we really that far apart from each other? <laughs> I guess that gave me some perspective of how it feels to be on or to be a part of a group that is just like, I don't know, distant in a way from the mindsets that you thought your friends had. I think that makes sense. I think that there are ways in which, and to just make some big broad sweeping statements right now, but I I feel like I can speak to this from a, a representation and film standpoint as that's like what my background has been in is that there are ways that our communities and individuals from our communities exist in really like narrow, two-dimensional, stereotypical ways in a mainstream imagination And people like will meet you as an individual and be like, oh, well, you're not like that. But the idea that they might still hold these beliefs about like your community at large, sometimes without even realizing how problematic those beliefs are, is like a really difficult thing to experience and be like, well, you just said this thing that's like, what? And I think what's shocking over and over again to me too is the idea that someone might say something like that literally not understanding how problematic it is that always kind of shocks me I often think that with a certain degree of like mm, what's the word like immersion or proximity or education or something like that like these beliefs don't exist and then you like navigate the world and find yourself in places where like Nope, that's still a held belief. Literally this week, there was something that happened in Oregon where a black family was suing because of something that their child had been asked to do in class. I think it was something around playing a game related to picking cotton. And when I saw the headline, I was like, that's absurd. Like, what? And then I read responses on Twitter or something like that for less than two minutes. And the responses were saying that their parents were absurd for asking for these damages. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Wait, that's the majority opinion here? And I just had to like move on and just believe to myself that that's not actually a majority opinion. Like that's who was this article being shown to? Why were they commenting in this way? Like, it's not nuanced, but it is like when you find yourself in those moments, it's, it is really difficult to believe that like, wow, there's a lot of people out there that think that way. And maybe they're right beside me. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. I remember one day I was, I was like reading through some Facebook news or something. This was, I don't know, like high school time period again, but 
there was news coming out that there had been surveillance drones flying around Dearborn. And as, as you can kind of sense from what I had said about Dearborn, it, it, it obviously sparked a lot of debate because you have the most densely populated Muslim community and now there's drones above it. Kind of an interesting coincidence, but they they put this news out on Facebook. And I remember reading the comments and just thinking, how are these real thoughts? Like people saying how it should it should drop bombs on mosques, like just horrible stuff that I did not even think was like a possible belief in this time. <laughs> yeah, which I think goes back to that conversation about like, trauma and fear and what we bring with us and how we then are able to try to like give other people the benefit of the doubt like I actually think it's like it's a really hard thing to do but it's really particularly when people that come from historically marginalized communities are like able to <laughs> give grace and give that benefit of the doubt over and over again I'm always like wow what does it take to do that like to extend that grace this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We talk a lot about mental health on this podcast and the importance of caring for yourself. In fact, we dedicated an entire season to it. And there are so many different ways to do that, whether through meditation or getting a massage, even trying some yummy ice cream flavors. But let's be honest, ice cream can only go so far and sometimes you need to connect with someone. I've been open about the fact that therapy has greatly helped me manage my anxiety. So if you've been struggling with stress, anxiety, or want to learn effective preventative tools, BetterHelp might be for you. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just complete a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. How amazing is that? Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com immigrantly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash immigrantly. I don't want to shift gears too fast and we certainly do not have to shift gears entirely because what an amazing start to this conversation we dove right in and here we are thank you so much for sharing everything that you did i'm curious backing up a little bit and maybe touching even on childhood but like what the words playing outside mean to you when when we say that like what do you think of or where do you go when i ask you like what does playing outside mean to you i i like that question a lot I would say for me, playing outside, and maybe this is just because how the last few years have played out, but it's always entailed something with the mountains for me. I would say one kind of hallmark memory that I have that I always come back to when I'm thinking about the outdoors is this memory of when I was probably five or six <clears throat> in Lebanon. And the summers in Lebanon would get really hot. So a lot of families, what they would do is you would rent or buy a house up in the mountains, and then you pretty much escape in the summers to go to the mountains where it's a little bit cooler. So my family did that for a few summers. <clears throat> and 
that was really for me where I fell in love with the outdoors, but specifically with the mountains. So our summer house, it was not remote, but the mountain itself was not incredibly accessible. So a lot of it was basically just one road and our mountain house, which was on one side would kind of like overlook pretty open land, but there would always be like goat herders and shepherds that were going through. And that drew a lot of curiosity for me. And eventually my dad and I would just go hike just straight up and down this mountain. And for some reason, that those were the moments for me that I come back to every time I think about where I want to be when I'm spending time outside. I also feel like I have such a cool picture in my head of you and your dad hiking. I think that's like I've heard I've I one of my very good friends close friends is Jordanian and has always told me like you got to come out and trek in this area and I'm like I know dude I got to get out there but it seems like it's super mountainous and like also there's desert but like the kind of a playground like I've seen some photos and I don't know and I'm obviously not trying to conflate the two I know they're close but like in Lebanon to me also in my head I'm sort of picturing like a really open sort of like massive expanse of land I don't know I could be wrong you'd be surprised so Lebanon itself I guess it, it, in in terms of geography Lebanon's about I want to say it's like a third or half the size of Connecticut. So it's fairly small, but within Lebanon, you just have such a dense and diverse amount of land. So like you could be on the beach and then you're suddenly three hour drive, you're skiing down a mountain. So very diverse in that sense, but it's really compact and everyone seems to have this like sharing aspect of land. And that was a big part of the LMT actually is while you're going through and you're hiking through the LMT, you're passing through what what feels like private land in some cases. And you're like encouraged to basically pick the apples and eat from the oranges and everything because that's part of the experience. And it's just sharing this land or this experience with the people that are cultivating and and herding their goats and everything. So that's super special. That's so cool. I love that that's part of the experience, like tasting the fruits and like being there feels like a full sensory thing. That's so awesome. I'm really excited to ask you about your LMT time. I want to like kind of ask about the origin story of like, how did you come to decide to trek the Lebanon mountain trail, et cetera? I already know you did Orizaba recently. Like I feel like you have this sort of mountaineering and trekking love and passion in you. I'm just curious how that came to be in your life. What was, and and maybe it goes back to being with your dad and like playing outside in that regard, but just curious how that grew for you over time. It absolutely goes back to, to those memories that I was saying in Lebanon in those first five years of my life, just spending so much time in the mountains with my dad. And I'm sure I started to associate all of the memories of my happiness with my father and, and some of the, I would say, more stable years of my childhood were, were those years that I was spending in the mountains with my family. So I'm sure those feelings started to grow into my love with the mountains and then vice versa. They kind of fed off each other. But then I moved to Ohio and I'm basically devoid of any <laughs> mountains. It's the most like flat place you could be. And for that period of time, I, di- I didn't really think, to be honest, I, I wasn't thinking about the outdoors that much growing up. There'd be times where I would have memories pop in my mind about 
those childhood experiences back in Lebanon and stuff. But I didn't feel incredibly curious or anything about the outdoors until I was about like my last year in Michigan, right before I moved to California. And then when I got to Southern California, something about being near the mountains and kind of the the weather even itself was so reminiscent of the like feeling that I got when I was in Lebanon that immediately, like the first thing that I did when I got, got off the plane in California was like looking up trails, figuring out which mountains to go to. And it wasn't even anything that I'd been doing. I wasn't like a hiker. I'd go on trips with friends and maybe we'd go up a mountain when we were in Colorado because it was there. But then when I got to, to LA and I was independent for the first time, it was like the number one thing that I felt like I had to do because I was there and I, I saw these mountains and it felt like something I'd experienced before. And also I was going through my first move and I was kind of experiencing a lot of new things. So that gave me, and this is kind of interesting and maybe I haven't thought about this much, but that almost gave me a sense of home and I think made me really comfortable in the first couple of years that I was experiencing independence. So that's probably where it started for me. I get to LA, <clears throat> I start to feel kind of like this, this yearning to get into the mountains, but you don't really know where to start. This Ohio boy is just showing up, like I don't know much. But someone had mentioned to me Mount Whitney, and then that became, I would say, like my first goal summit was Mount Whitney. And in hindsight, really not that technical of a mountain at all. But I think maybe just a part of my own personality is being really like goal oriented or seeing something that I'm working towards and having that then put something on my timeline that I was building towards. So I started to kind of like set, set smaller goals, right? So I wanted to figure out like, how do you train for this and what do I need to do? So I would do a lot of the mountains in the area. I would basically like pack my backpack on a Thursday right before work and go to work, then boom, like Thursday afternoon or Friday or whatever, go straight to the mountains, whether it was in the Angeles National Forest or the Cucamonga area or wherever it was, and just be there. Like without even having much plans, it just felt super natural. And, and again, it made me feel like I was back in a place that, that was familiar. I would just go to these mountains and spend the entire weekend, come back and feel 180 different person, just like so much happier, so much better in such a better place. And I was just amazed that like a, a, a place, let alone a place of nature could make me feel so at home. That feels really, well, I just feel like Faith and I have had, you know, adventures. We both used to live in Oregon together. And there's moments where I just remember, like, everything you're saying, I just have a huge smile on my face because I can picture, like, you know, the just the weekend, like, where to next, you know? Where's my, where am I going to go with my backpack or where am I going to camp out this weekend? I feel like there was a summer in Oregon where I spent, I think I calculated I spent more like nights in a tent than in my bed or something like we definitely weekends I think there was also it was like it was like coming up close to like weekdays too but yeah it just it's like it I love that feeling of coming back 
to, you know, whatever it might be, your job or a Monday morning, whatever you're working on, or, you know, your, your kind of regularly scheduled programming, if you will, like coming back from those adventures are just, it's just so rejuvenating. And it's really interesting to hear about your connection specifically to that, which feels like it's starting to bubble up on like, as we're speaking, but to your childhood and to your family and like feeling home, feeling like you're recognizing at least like pursuits and goal-oriented adventures. And something that you're saying and hitting on that's it really resonates with me is not that I want to prioritize work or anything, but in a lot of ways, that balance of work is is like part of the story. It's almost like I've had to basically find a way to make the things that I love work just on the weekends while also still trying to like maintain a full-time job. And that's been a big part of like trying to work this, all, all this stuff out. I'm sure you kind of experience the same things. Like, sure, you, you want to prioritize being outdoors and do all those things. But at the same time, like for, for the average person who's still working a career and everything, you're not willing to just give that up. And even if you were like, how, how do you make that work? It's, it's a tough, tough question to answer. But I just feel like that has been probably one of the bigger challenges in the last few years of really trying to to get into the outdoor space is figuring out the balance of a lot of things in life with that. One of those and the most challenging being like a career, like you can't just give up work because that's what's enabling me to do some of these things. And then you try to figure out the balance and you're like, man, I know that I'm working so I can do this, but at the same time, like you're trying to build a career and you're trying to get ahead in your job and do all these other things. So you can't just step away from it. I feel like you're bringing up one of the things that like is kind of a backdrop for a lot of what we talk about, which is it is a privilege to be able to do all of these things that we do in the outdoors. And I've like had back to like reading the comments, but I've had people like push back and be like, what do you mean it's a privilege to be able to go on a run X amount of times during a week? Like, but I do think the idea of being able to create space for leisure is unfortunately a privilege very often because we live in a world where like many people are living paycheck to paycheck and don't get a chance to do that thing. And then in addition, like Nature is not super accessible in a lot of places. It's a good reminder that we're really lucky when we get to do things like this. And at the same time, it takes resources to spend time in the outdoors like this. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in like, I don't know, sometimes we forget that leisure is like such a privilege. No, it's absolutely a privilege. I mean, I, in some regards, feel like I've experienced or I've met people that have disconnected themselves from some of the stuff that I would, I would like consider to be special experiences in the mountains and everything. But in other ways, I just struggle to see how there's a way to easily live like a trail running, always outdoor lifestyle. Even if you want to, you, you're going to have to work for it, right? Like it's, it's not something that you just walk outside and start doing. <laughs> Okay, I am going to do it. I'm going to ask you about the Lebanon Mountain Trail because it's the thing that we're super excited to hear a little bit about and also 
my goodness, I feel like we could all three talk forever because you're extremely easy to talk to. Appreciate that. So if if just for folks listening, and even for myself, I'm curious to hear how you decided to take this adventure on and have this experience. And also, though, can you tell us a little bit more about what it is and how long it is and where it's located? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So going back to the Mount Whitney thing, I was... <clears throat> A couple weeks out from the actual climb, and I was starting to get my gear together. W- went to REI to shop for my first ice axe, and as I'm kind of like looking for ice axes, this this <laughs> this bald, very bearded man was standing next to me, also looking at ice axes. And I just remember, I was I was looking at him, and I'm like, man, something about you just feels familiar, and he started talking immediately. I pick up on the accent. I'm like, Oh, you're Egyptian. So we start talking in Arabic. I followed the guy on, on Facebook and the entire experience really just like kind of sat in the back of my brain. Didn't think about it too much more until I started kind of going on, on other tracks. And then I started researching what exists back in Lebanon that I can go experience as like maybe a hike. So I run across or I ran into the Lebanon Mountain Trail, which I think started maybe in the early 2000s. I didn't I had no idea this thing existed. So it was just like a a very cool surprise for me to hear that we had some kind of through hike back home. And as I started reading more about it and I'm thinking like this is going to be a four week adventure, how am I going to possibly fit this into my life? I had a friend that was working at Patagonia who I eventually reached out to and I was like, hey, like I watched some of the short videos that you guys put out on YouTube and I see that you're starting to focus a little bit on the marginalized communities being in the outdoors. Do you guys have any interest in potentially sponsoring my trip to whatever mountain I was going on and maybe doing a film or something? And I was put in touch with like an intern and it just didn't work out. But what came of that and just so nice that the universe responded in this way. But the friend that I had ended up putting me in touch with Scott, who was just about to launch We Got Next. So that kind of refueled the fire for me to think, okay, so there is an opportunity now. What is this project going to look like? So that was 2019, right before COVID hit. And then there was the entire year, two years where nothing was happening because of COVID and it gave me so much time to be able to really think about it. And luckily, I, d- I didn't lose sight. So I was still like, very gung ho about having this experience. I just didn't know what it was going to look like yet. So working with We Got Next, we kind of like chopped it up into smaller bite sized goals and figuring out what the, the actual impact we wanted the project to have, and then kind of working backwards from that. So Lebanon Mountain Trail, like I said, started in like the early 2000s. There is an entire association that upkeeps it. And it's gone through a lot of changes. But at the time that I had hiked it or trekked it, it was three or just under 300 miles, like 290 something ish miles. It starts from the north border of Lebanon in a in a city called Andit and pretty close to like the Syrian border and then goes all the way down through the Lebanon mountains. It's actually called the Lebanon Mountain, which sometimes can be confusing for people because it's technically a range. It's not just one mountain. But it goes through the Lebanon mountain range down to within eyesight of the the Israeli border. So typically takes about four weeks. You're doing one section a day and they chop it up into about 27-ish sections and you have a couple break days. 
So when I was trying to kind of plan it out all logistically, I was having such a hard time because there really are not great resources or information out readily available about the Lebanon Mountain Trail, other than the resources that the association has put out themselves. It's a tough thing to navigate when you're on the other side of the world, also trying to figure out like who to contact, where you're going to stay, where you and every section has a completely different town and completely different everything. So what I did is I went on Instagram and I just looked up some people that had recently accomplished the the entire trek. And I found this guy, his name is Sharbal, Sharbal Satouf. He had just completed the LMT in, a, I think, 10 days. And I, I added him, messaged him, and we kind of hit it off. And we started talking about these plans. I'm telling him, like, this is, this is my vision. I want to go have this experience and, and then bring it back to America and, and, and show not only the Lebanese diaspora, but the entire, like, Middle Eastern world, all of these great resources that we have back home and how we're, we, we have a deep connection to nature and the outdoors and all of these things that innately we were whenever, whenever it is in certain aspects of history, but innately this was our survival like this. We didn't, we didn't just go for hikes because we liked it. Like this, this is how we lived. <laughs> and I wanted to bring that back. So anyway, Sharble fell in love with the idea too. And then we start planning. So over the course of about seven months, we have weekly meetings. We talk through the logistics of specifics on the day where we're stopping, what food we're going to have. And and if you've ever experienced a through hike, you know that you have to get into some pretty nitty gritty details because you just aren't sure what you're going to run into, right? What problems you're going to have. And especially when you're on the other side of the world and you only know so many people, you 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 have to really think through some of these issues and plan ahead. So you're basically planning with this guy who you met via Instagram and otherwise you're doing everything totally remotely and the whole thing he had done in 10 days that sounds really fast, right? It's 290 miles or how long did you say? Yep, it's it's just about 290 miles and it is through some of the most grueling, unforgiving terrain I've experienced. It's not that the weather was that difficult. It's not that the trail is that difficult, if you want to call it a trail. It's just a combination of everything. This is where I struggle because I love to talk about the struggle of it. I I love to talk about like how difficult this was, but I don't like that it comes across sometimes it could be perceived as negative or, and I also don't like that maybe it shies some people away from having an experience like this, but Faith, the conversation that we had when we were in your car about like having this like pain bank, for me, that, that is a huge part of the experience, like suffering through it a little bit. I mean, I think, I think people spend time outside in different ways, right? And like some Sometimes it's like at this point where I'm at is like I'm not doing any kind of through hiking like that is not what brings me joy right now. But the fact that you are and that's what brings you joy right now is also great. But I also know that you could go on like a morning hike at a different pace and it doesn't have to be intense on whatever morning and like enjoy that, too. So I think I think it's okay. I, I hear what you're saying, though. Sometimes it's like. It's the quote unquote suffer fest. It makes it seem like that's the only way to 
enjoy your time outside or like fit in. And that's not the complete story. I think at this point, I mean, we should say like, you've done a lot of mountaineering in many different places before you went on the LMT and have continued to after. In addition to this being one of the most difficult experiences based on the terrain and based on like, it's not as common an undertaking as something that's as well, still difficult, but much better like curated and maintained with like ways of helping and network, et cetera, as like the Pacific Crest Trail. In addition to the difficulty, like what was it like to undertake this thing where you were going home to do it? Like what what was that experience like for you? How did it maybe feel different from some of your other outdoor endeavors? Oh man, there's so many layers to that. <laughs> In doing this project, the clear goal for me, the number one priority for me was to document the nature, the landscape, the reconnection, and have that be kind of the talking point for other people to to jump onto and start experiencing like their own reconnection with their their heritage or just like connecting with nature in general. But on a personal level, there was so many more layers for me. One of those layers was me going back home. And to add to that, I think we keep alluding to my childhood and and we can talk about it. But I grew up, as I said, like in a single parent household. And my father, who's my absolute hero, had gone through a really horrible divorce, which probably adds to why I felt so comfortable and like attracted to the outdoors. But going back, I was so nervous. I was so nervous to see how I was going to react to this moment. Because in a lot of ways, I kind of had like drummed it up in my mind that this was going to be it. Like this is this is how I'm going to heal some of that trauma. I'm going to go through this this adventure and and I'm going to be able to visit my uncle's grave for the first time. I'm going to be able to see like all of the characters in these memories and and like stories that I have in my mind that I've suppressed for so long and I'm going to be able to talk to people on the trail like you said in Arabic and feel comfortable and and really learn about my culture in a way. So there was so much anticipation for me that I got really nervous about it before I ever went. But then the moment that I landed and I, I come out of the airport and I get greeted by my family, it all just went away. It was all just gone. And then I could focus again on like that reconnection and the the healing aspects personally and also just the project in general. But those first few moments was just like so magical to feel like, man, all of the things that I had worried about were not made up, but not as important as having this actual experience. And then when I got to Lebanon, I think the first few days for me, I was still trying to change in my mind between the language and the culture and everything. I think in the first few days, I learned a lot. Like I learned that not everyone in Lebanon knew about the Lebanon mountain trail. A lot of people in Lebanon barely cared to go on hikes for some of those reasons that we were talking about. But then the people that were there that I was meeting on the trails had such a deep and beautiful connection to the trail and the land itself that I was blown away. I was blown away in the first few days by how connected 
the people that wanted to be connected were. That, I mean, sounds like incredible to just be able to make some of those connections and the idea of like just being being able to like find home in a place that maybe you didn't know what it would feel like to to arrive. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big question mark. And I didn't even know if it was going to feel like home, to be honest. But then when I got there, it did. It, it absolutely did. I was talking recently with someone about small nature versus big nature, which I think is something that we I've, we've talked about a lot before, which is kind of like the backyard versus like the mountain. And like when you say like some, a place like Yosemite, it exists in people's minds in such a certain way. And at the same time, there are so many other places like throughout the U.S. and around the world that are so special for such different reasons as well. So it's nice to hear like stories of other places, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that it's interesting. The That's such a good way to put it, like backyard versus big nature. But for people people that that is their backyard right or at some point it was we we just decided that that's the national park and here's the borders around it but at some point that was someone's backyard or or still can be it's just we view it different like you said like it's just a perspective such a good point to bring up always how how did you feel coming off of the LMT like first of all can you tell us like once again like how by the end how long had you spent on the trail and then what was it like coming back I'd spent just under three weeks. I think it was like 20 something or maybe 20 days flat. The trail every day was a completely different experience. And a lot of that is by design. Kind of the way that you hike this trail is, like I said, it's it's separated into sections and the trail itself is not only nature-based. It's actually a very social experience as well because of the density of Lebanon. You're forced to go through some towns and at any point in time, you're actually not that far from some city or some town or some civilization or a village or something. It's an interesting trail because it's so integrated into various populations. And those populations are so diverse from each other that one day you're going to be you know, in this valley where you're around mostly Druze. And then the next day you hop over to the other mountain range, which geographically is separated, but still in Lebanon. And it has completely different biosphere. And now these people are Orthodox Christian or Maronite, and they're living right next to each other. They interact. But now the one thing that's connecting them is this trail, which is pretty beautiful because you get to experience it all. So on a daily basis, you're, you're having different experiences like that. And you're collecting so much information in your brain that it, it almost becomes like an overload. And by the, the time that I was getting done, physically, I was so broken. I, I had just finished this 20th day, I think, probably close to 300 miles. And I'd hiked through two or three heat waves, consistently being stopped by either locals or militias and being questioned or consistently having small dilemmas that you're dealing with. And so mentally, you're just drained as well. Not to mention, as you said, Faith, I was there at a really tumultuous point in Lebanese history right now. It's some of the worst that has ever happened to Lebanon. The hyperinflation just completely devastated the country where we struggled at any point in time to have like reliable electricity or reliable food. And I'd gotten food poisoning many times because refrigeration was out. So all those small issues just added to like 
the the mental fatigue that by the time I was done, one, I didn't I didn't even feel like I was done, right? Like I'm still just so incredibly exhausted, but I I didn't have a chance to even begin unpacking it. And I was so so ready to just lay down in bed for the first time that looking back at it, that finish line was not what I was expecting. And I was actually just watching a video of Sharvel was recording me as I was finished. And he's like, how do you feel? Tell us, tell us what's going through your mind. And the only thing I could think of is, man, I want some pizza. <laughs> That's totally fair. I mean, I feel like it, it takes maybe years or like maybe it will never fully be something you can wrap your brain around. I mean, it was a significant portion of time and a significant event in your life. It sounds like, you know, things will emerge like a memory or a moment or a thought that you had. And I think that's kind of some of the the beauty of it too. So don't put pressure on yourself to do it all right now. (laughs) Like you're saying, like these hopes that I was going to get to the finish line and I was going to feel like this huge sense of accomplishment and this weight lifted off my shoulders. But I don't know. I still, in many ways, am unpacking the experience even today. I don't know if I'll ever really truly like be able to unpack all of the things that happened at that that short trip. Because <laughs> honestly, it's true. Like having a project like this sitting in the background, I always think about it. I'm always thinking like, man, I should pop open a video and rewatch something. But you're right. I mean, a lot of the most beautiful memories I have just kind of naturally pop back into my mind. And it's not like I'm sitting there trying to think about them. It's interesting what you were saying about the expectations for a thing, whether it be like processing or some kind of homecoming, et cetera, versus the reality of the thing. Like sometimes we get that. Sometimes we don't. Like sometimes the outdoors provides a lot of that. Sometimes it comes later. Right. And that's some of the that's the magic of that. I wanted to ask about this because obviously we we know Wit, someone who worked on documenting this adventure. I wanted to just ask, is there a film coming out of this or is there a, a visual project that will represent the experience i mean i hope so i really hope so guys like (laughs) this one for me i can't let this sit i i'm thinking about it all the time like how do i how do we get this video out how do we do something with it but yeah it feels like the last chapter hasn't been written as someone that knows that film takes time i think this story whenever we get to see it will mean a lot to a lot of people and will show a lot and excited to see more of your journey as well. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you did. And like, I learned so much about your childhood and upbringing and like all of these very important and complex themes and conversations and experiences that you had. Like, I just think it really brings an extra layer of this conversation in outdoor representation and access and equity and inclusion is like obviously really what we care so much about. I'm just so grateful for to you for sharing what you did beyond that because like I really think it provides an incredible foundation of your story. For the debrief this week, we felt like we needed some additional expertise to dig into some of the topics that came up during the conversation with Ahmed. Our guest for the debrief this week is Maitha Alhassan, PhD, who wears so many hats it's hard to describe. She's a writer, producer, journalist, professor, and a pop culture collaborative senior fellow. 
She is produced and executive produced for Al Jazeera's The Stream and is a co-executive producer, writer, and social impact advisor for Hulu's award-winning series, Rami. She also hosts a show called Key Terms with Slow Factory, which we nerded out on so much before the debrief. And honestly, this intro is barely the tip of the iceberg. Take a listen and enjoy the debrief. Well, thank you once again for joining us. We're so excited. However you would like to introduce yourself, we'd love to hear it. I call myself a freedom doula and an engaged witness because my work is very much about how we can be a part of each other's collective liberation, and it is rooted in my training as a journalist, writer, poet, producer now of TV and film, and also a writer in those fields, and a organizer of people from a grassroots place and perspective. But I think increasingly, I'm also sitting with my relationship with the unveiling of divine beauty and trying to honor that. I love that. Yeah. Can you, I saw that withness on oh, your, yes. yeah. Can you talk oh, about yeah. that? Yeah. So engaged withness, I write it W I T backslash H backslash N E S S. What I mean by this is thinking about how the word withness and witness are contained in each other and it is directly rooted in my dissertation which had me looking at the post-world war ii history of afro-arab solidarity politics and that has a dash in afro-arab meaning both as separate and overlapping categories because clearly there are black arabs and there are people who try to define themselves in a place of slippage. In Arabic, there is a different way of looking at the definition and etymology of the word or a word. You have three letters that connect certain words conceptually together and words like shahada, which means an act of profession, witness, testimony, all have the same root. So I found that interesting that you can't witness something without testifying, and it is part of the active profession, shahada, which means the first step towards embracing Islam. How I connected these concepts together, it was to say, well, when you witness an injustice, a part of you dies, and you can only be reborn in the telling. So I distinctly saw that as a wedded, entangled in the best possible way relationship between witness and testimony. And what engages you to that means you're with it now. I love going back to the etymology of words because I feel like we learn so much there. 
but also this question of witnessing is something that like one of my professors in college was Dr. Elizabeth Alexander. And one of my favorite essays that I go back to all the time is, can you be black and look at this reading the Rodney King tapes, which of course was before, you know, this current Black Lives Matter movement where like the availability of looking at black bodies undergoing violence is so prevalent, but this question of like, what does it mean for us to be witnessing what we are witnessing about each other in community and how we're with that? Like what you said about witnessing that and a part of us dying and then like retelling it and the importance of our voices. I'm just like spinning. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And we go back and forth on, or we have debate with ourselves and our communities and outside of our communities, what it means to witness our traumas. That's why somebody like Sarah Lewis wants us to think about witness in the sense of beauty, how it compels us, right? Mm -hmm. So frequently, we think about, as you said, Rodney King, and that was a game changer, maybe not for that trial, but for what people were unwilling to tolerate and erupted around. And it shifted the racial conversation in Los Angeles. I grew up in LA. So talking about the King tapes, what that meant to have witnesses and then what the city could not pull over us. That was significant. But again, what does it mean for us to constantly watch our bodies under trauma and what is the beautiful intervention that could be made. I love that idea too about like what else we get to witness about ourselves, you know, outside of violence and what those connections might be. I also just loved Mayfa when we, you know, started to research more about your work and we found the withness, witness, witness on a lot of the work that you do and and in the discussions you had in online spaces and in conversations. And I think I just love the way that you define that for yourself and have this theory of change is probably the wrong word, but an ethos or a guiding principle to follow in all of your work. I think that's quite incredible. And, and that you formulated your own word or your own stylization of that word is, is really compelling too. I wanted to ask you a specific question because it was sure. something that came up in our conversation with Ahmed that I felt really like I was not equipped for the conversation. And it was kind of around what is often called self-segregation, right? And and I've always come to it as being like the myth of self-segregation, right? I grew up primarily in and around New York City and now live in Portland, Oregon, where the community enclaves are very different. But I used to love like running through Brooklyn because I could go from a Hasidic Jewish community to a Russian community to a Latino community to like a mainly Vietnamese community all on this one run. And at the same time, right, like there's there's a group called Chinatown Runners that specifically like encourages people to come to Chinatown because there are people that think like, oh, I can't go there because it's Chinatown, right? So this this concept of like, sometimes the, particularly communities that have like an immigrant background, where there might be a different language spoken, et cetera, that they get blamed for self-segregation. But then this idea that people within the community might also 
say, is this healthy that we are insular or not? And and I, I think the question is like, what does it mean to have enclaves? Is that a healthy thing for culture creation within a majority white dominant culture? I think I'll take a note from my unique upbringing to unpack this question of the self-segregation myth. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a city in LA County, very suburban, called West Covina. My dad saw himself as the patriarch of the family, so he arranged for him, his brothers and sisters to take over basically a cul-de-sac. So I grew up with all my dad's family. And it made for quite an interesting upbringing. The pluses were that I could have three or four dinners because I would just jump from one house to the other. And we would take our plastic chairs in front of our driveway, eat watermelon. I know a lot of people don't know this, but Syrians eat watermelon after every meal. And it was really interesting for me to then encounter America through the stereotypes that it has of different communities. So when I found out that Black people were demonized for eating watermelon and it was the center of minstrel imagery. I was just like, what? It's interesting when I would talk to my Black American friends who were predominantly born and raised in the US, they seemed to have a much deeper understanding of white supremacy because I had that insularity. And so they would explain a lot of cultural behavior. So you, that's you know one thing. And then my mom's side was from all over the world and continued to live in Montreal, Madrid, London, Bahrain, an uncle that moved around, Italy, China now, and were married into many different communities. And my grandparents lived in France. And my mom grew up similarly all over the place, mostly Lebanon, left at the start of the Civil War, went to school in the UK, lived in France, met my father when she lived in France. So I've been in in what academics would call that cosmopolitan global lifestyle. And then I've been in that rooted (laughs) small enclave community But what I will say, which is fascinating, is that my dad grew up with mostly Central American Mexican culture in Los Angeles, and he felt the most at home there. So he was known as the Syrian that doesn't mix with Syrians. And in this sort of way, I guess they would call it a third culture kid. I've always felt like that value of belonging wasn't prioritized for me. There was something really precious, actually, about being on the margins. And I know that feels counterintuitive because we're told that, or we imagine marginality as something that distance ourselves from being able to have access to resources, being able to live a fulfilling, vibrant life. But there's something about that permeability of a margin where you can go in and out and then also have, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about a double consciousness there. And this is the bigger point. There 
is not just double consciousness, there's triple, there's quadruple. And once you sit at the margins, it gives you a deeper awareness of the nuances that sometimes I think being rooted in a enclave can flatten. And so I'll give another example to this. My father was from Aleppo, but that, because I grew up with my dad's family, that was a, a self affirming myth. I come to find out later that much later that my father's father is from a Bedouin Arab tribe. And that was a point of shame actually, because they were marginalized. But again, once I started to delve into, well, dad, what is the name of the tribe? Oh, look, there's one resource online in Arabic about this tribe. The women have face tattoos and they wear nose rings. Oh my God, that's why I've been attracted to those things. So there's a kind of erasure that comes with solely rooting in any one community, I would say. And so I think that's part of the questioning. Although there is definitely a home to be around people who you don't have to explain things to folks on the outside of a certain community, there's not just one community that our lives can fit into. And I think that's where my questioning begins and ends. Yeah. So I think something else, Metha, that came up in in our conversation with Ahmed in the on the podcast was kind of the the fear when it when it comes to Arab and Islamic representation and the shift that happened maybe specifically after 9-11 but it just has had been potentially held as a belief or a fear or a stigma or stereotype in this country for so many years. And I was just curious how that fear or that representation or those held beliefs shows up in your work, but also how your work aims to combat that misunderstanding and misrepresentation. When I think about what my experience was growing up in the U.S. as Arab, Syrian, with a background as a Bedouin, and also with ancestral origins in Egypt and Arabia, I think about what feelings came with how we were being seen and how long it took me to be able to name those things. And so as we've been saying, there's this push and pull of academia because there have been such just rogue academics, scholars who can put those name that who can put that name on that feeling that just unleashes so much more exploration and reconciliation. So somebody like Nadine Neber, who spoke about Politically, socially, she's an anthropologist. The history of Arab American invisibility and hypervisibility gave me a framework to understand what was happening when I was growing up. That because of the hypervisibility of such a damaging, violent, one dimensional portrayal of us, and primarily it was of the figure of the Arab Muslim man that also correspond that also corresponded to a political reality, what I call this 
triangle of politics, pop culture, and public opinion, there was this interesting relationship with how pop culture spoke to the political moment and influenced public opinion. And of course, the way that Arabs and Muslims are understood could start with pop culture and end up influencing politics. And again, it could even start from the point of public opinion, but the underlying argument here is that all three things affect each other. And so when the U.S. was witnessing the OPEC countries led by Saudi Arabia and other, not just Arab countries, but Arab countries, they were demonized for, in 1973, taking away what the West would even say out loud, not in whispered, quiet, or subtle ways, our oil away from us and having people wait in these extensive lines and for gas and have gas rations, they are distinctly responsible for bringing us to our knees. And it turned into representations on TV and film of the overly lascivious oil tycoon who irresponsibly spends his money on things a responsible Westerner would not or is a just overly lusting over in particular white women and has a harem around him. It was just such stark one-dimensional characters. So that's just one example. Anytime that there was a Persian Gulf invasion, in the 1990s, again we saw this. It, again, we saw this uptick of representing Arab men as what I call, and, and Iranians, Middle Easterners, as an untermanch, as subhuman. You saw this with hijacking films, and of course, all this stuff happened before 9/11, and you you saw characters that had not one particular redeeming value at all. You saw a a sword fighter that came to a gun battle in Indiana Jones. You saw people who were also, the strange thing, they were menacing, but they were bumbling fools. So they weren't even evil geniuses. There was a way that the representation of Arab and Muslim men had to be undercut as a enemy that could be conquered very easily because of American might. Now, what I've been primarily talking about has been the overrepresentation of Arab men within this oil billionaire tycoon, millionaire tycoon, bumbling fool, lichievous, lichievous man. But what about Arab women or other genders? Well, we've been primarily either behind sheets or an exposed belly button in a belly dancing sequence. So we've been invisibilized for a large part of the history of TV and film. And that, again, kind of led to a child version of Metha who wanted more than anything to just be invisible if the alternative was to be hyper-visible. And then, you know, 9-11 happens and my generation mostly, although there have been predecessors who 
had tried to intervene in those portrayals, especially like Aladdin. Jack Shaheen, media studies scholar who had has passed away, was a big figure in trying to hold media accountable for atrocious representations of Arabs and Muslims. He wrote this incredible compendium of, I believe, a thousand films where he surveyed the portrayal from the beginning of TV and film in the early 1900s to 2000, and then 2001 happens, and he has another additional. But these folks have been tracking the work. And post 9-11, it was really my generation that wanted to do an even bigger splash that we needed to shift things after 9-11. Because there was in a space of extreme hypervisibility, no more being invisible. What I have noticed writing and producing on a show like Rami on Hulu is that when people see the character of Dina, who is the daughter in the Hassan family, she's Arab American, she's Egyptian Palestinian American. People tell me that she's one of their favorite characters. They wish they could see more of her. And they are stunned by her gumption and the way that her story of her position as the daughter in a family is strikingly similar to theirs in a Cameroonian family, to theirs in a Guatemalan family. And so what I did realize in sitting with just that one character is that for most of TV history, Dina might be the first, and I am always so reluctant to say the first, but one of the first times that people in a U.S. audience gets to see what an Arab American daughter, young woman looks like and what the contours of her life are, which was stunning to think about being a part of the process of writing that and how what it means to have a history devoid of that storytelling and why it was such a shocker for people in the most pleasant way to sit with at the way Dina navigates her life in New Jersey, New York area, and what the questions of faith and accomplishment, success and love look like for her. Thank you so much. And yeah, we will we will link to all the things you talked about and especially Rami. It is so good. What you were saying about these really narrow controlling images of us that say, not only are we dangerous, but we're also not even, like when you said we're not even the evil geniuses, I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Like, it's always like you're menacing, but also you don't have the mental capacity to really pull off the threat. And that's so untrue, but it's the narrative that gets created to both create like both fear and a sense of supremacy. Yeah. And I would add, and I think this has been a big debate and conversation in our community, which is because that image is so confining and suffocating as this one-dimensional, evil, ominous figure who is foolish. We, as a community with such limited 
characters and storylines to point to crave being the perfect victim. And so that's been a challenge because the show Rami doesn't want to paint us as the perfect victim, any of the characters. We want to be messy and that should be our right to be messy. (laughs) That's what fullness is. It is the shadow and the light. And then we are doing the same damage by creating the perfect victim, Mm. the unblemishable, who knows what kind of standard, but the, the conceit that we need to operate with this, this vision of what the white gaze determines as acceptable and deserving of life. This is a big part, and I, I think it connects back to what we're thinking, what, what you all are talking about when it comes to being in nature, hiking, being on these trails, and reconnecting to the wildness and our relationship to the wild. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we've had to break through was this manicured version of the perfect victim that we see on TV and film that then we have to embody to be acceptable in public space. But this is what having a relationship to nature and messiness requires of us is to reconnect to the wild and then see the genius of surrendering to the bubbling of what is organic, what is what what kind of wisdom there is to a f- falling leaf onto the earth and the regeneration of life underneath many roots and conversation with each other. And that, I mean, it's all connected for me, the way that we're seen in these tight, confined spaces, but then having a relationship outdoors that reminds us where there's there's so much freedom in surrendering to the wild. Oh, yes. Oh. Thank you so much for adding <laughs> I love that. that. Those lessons from nature, like to not be able to see them, like, and not to overuse the word resilience because it gets thrust on us in so many different ways. But I, I don't know. I just feel like there's so many, so many lessons in nature that you're not going to see if you don't get to engage with it. Wow. So thank you so much for joining us. And how can people find you and find your work? What's the best way to learn more? I am a pretty consistent poster sharer on Instagram at Maytha, M-A-Y-T-H-A, Alhassan, A-L-H-A-S as in snake, S as in snake, E-N. You can even type my name into Google, the first names, six letters, M-A-Y-T-H-A, and all the things pop up because there's not that many Maythas in America (laughs) or in English. And I have a website, www.maythaalhassan.com, where you can find out some things about Engage Witness, the work that I've done, and this direction I'm taking with something we didn't even begin to talk about. Thank you so much, Mitha. This Thank was you. unbelievable. We just start our day on the, on the West Coast. And uh, yeah, you. really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for all the things.
So, how did you like the episode? I hope you enjoyed it. As most of you know, Immigrantly is not just a space for our conversations. We try to hold space for others to express their points of view. Anyways, this episode was edited for Immigrantly by Paroma Chakravarti. Our theme music is by Simon Hutchinson. Don't forget to come back next week for a brand new Immigrantly episode. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on all socials, Instagram at ImmigrantlyPod, Twitter at Immigrantly underscore pod, TikTok, yep, TikTok at ImmigrantlyPodcast. And guys, just leave us a nice five-star review wherever you listen to our podcast. Take care.